Hi, John. How are you? Hi, Dan. What's up? Wake up. Wake up. It's morning. I'm here. I'm here. I'm I'm awake. All right. Beep, beep, ba-doo. So, ba-doo. what's mm. up? What's up with new? What's up with new? What is up with new? Yeah. Oh, some just good on times. You all right? Yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. All right. Great, brah. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah. I'm talking about. Yep. Yep. But yep. Um, sure. Oh, oh, boy. Am I right? Yeah, I know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What's going on there? What's going on with you? You seen any uh, seen any good movies lately? Seen any anything happening? No, no movies. No movies. The last movie that I saw was one I thought I mentioned this to you, but um, it's First Man. Yeah, highly recommend that if you haven't seen it. Is it about Neil Armstrong? Yeah, uh, it's about the the first man on the moon. Mm-hmm. And what led up to that, and it's told in a different way than than the movies that or documentaries even that I've seen about that, where it um, it um, it in, instead of kind of just being like we're going to tell the whole story about all the stuff that happened, it's told more from an individual standpoint, and it's a much much more a character movie, a character based movie. Uh, as opposed to like a these are the things that happened kind of movie. So you get to follow the story of Neil Armstrong as he begins working on the space program and everything that kind of leads up uh, to him eventually st- setting foot on the moon. If you that believe that that's what happened, John. Right. Of course. Of course. Of course. If you uh, if you're the if movie you're willing to accept that it's and it wasn't just something that was being made on the set of uh, Lolita. <laughs> right. I, I have, we've talked about what I think happened there, right? Uh, on the moon landing. Yeah. I'm not sure that I do know your theory of the moon landing. Well, as a kid growing up, John, I, one of the things I wanted to be most like probably most kids from our generation and time was like, we wanted to be astronauts who wouldn't have wanted to go into space and maybe go to the moon or do something cool like that. So I always wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. I was obsessed with space travel and, you know, like my favorite toys were the like one or two Lego kits that I wound up with that were like space, you know, and Uh gosh, I should try and find a picture of one of those because I had one that was like a moon landing one and it was super cool. And I grew up 100% believing that this was this was real of course of course we had been to the moon of, of course. course we had and of course all the things that we were told are true right and then then when i got older and i started getting into conspiracy theory type things i started to you know learn about the moon one and it it that's the one that i i would say i struggled with even considering that one more than any, you know, you want to tell me that there's some kind of Bigfoot running around. I believe, sure, there could be a Bigfoot. There could be a Loch Ness. Absolutely. But like, I really didn't want to think that we didn't go to the moon. Right. And if you came out and told me, Dan, you know, Bigfoot, all all of them, ever, every footprint, every single thing, 100% hoax, all hoaxes. I'd be like, yeah, 
kind of was kind of unlikely that we had like a cool like primate creature that's maybe kind of smart and you know lives still somehow living in the woods you know out in behind john's house but the idea that we didn't go to the moon would be heartbreaking for me so i was even more skeptical than i usually am uh which is fairly skeptical of this kind of thing and so after i thought about this a lot you were you were skeptical of the conspiracy theory yes okay 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 okay. skeptical of the conspiracy theory because it would shatter a big piece of my childhood worldview if we in fact had not gone to the moon right but so here's but i think that there's truth to this conspiracy theory and i'll tell you what i think Uh, here's what i think i think we did go to the moon Okay. I think we we have been to the moon in in the way that they tell us that we have been there. All right. But I'm with you so far. But if yeah. there is footage from the moon, photos from the moon, film and other things that when scrutinized are questionable. Why would that be? Why if we right. actually did get to the moon would would there be these oddities with the photographs, the shadows in the photographs, the light sources, the lack of light sources, all of these different things that that could potentially call into question. Right, sure, that mag light that's leaning yes. on the side of the <clears throat> lander and the... Sure. Right, the pancakes. How do you explain the pancakes? How do you explain them? So right. I have a theory. I have a theory, and here it is. All right, I'm dying to hear this. When we were in the process of planning to go to the moon and eventually going to the moon, as you well know, probably way better than I do, there was the space race going on. We wanted to be first to the moon. We had wanted to be first in orbit. Yeah, uh, we didn't, didn't make that. Did Russia beat us to that. And so there was a serious competitiveness that I think was part of related to the Cold War. It was related to the fact that... um we were trying to compete with them on every level and in and, and, and every way. And it was it, how much of that was necessary. Good question, John. Good question. Yeah, okay. All right. But, there. but that's the way things were. And so it was critical for two reasons that we make it to the moon and that we make it there first. And I'll tell you what my, my, the first reason I believe is one, it would have, it would have been a way for us because we weren't, really at war with russia we were kind of one but we kind of wanted to be we kind of wanted to beat them we were at war maybe not on the battlefield but in other ways so this was a battle that we had to win almost like a cold war you you could call it that and so we wanted to win by getting out there first and so there that would do two things one is it would boost national morale and two it would, uh, it would, it would make the Russians uh, feel horrible, and so we had to succeed in this no matter what. And yes. what I believe happened was that we had lots of contingency plans in place. Should okay. we attempt to go to the moon and fail, or it, some aspect of the mission were to fail? For example, uh, because there had been there had been missions to the moon or there would be missions to the moon where they wouldn't be able to 
uh, actually land on the moon or they would try other things that wouldn't work. They could not afford for that to happen. Under no circumstance could the mission be a failure. And anything less than we've put a man on the moon would be a failure. You see? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so they had contingency plans. And the contingency plans were, we're going to ma- film this whole thing. We're going to film people on the moon. Really, it would probably be in a soundstage somewhere. But we're going to make it as realistic as we possibly can. And we're going to make tons of photos and pictures and come up with footage. We can show this to the people should something actually go wrong. And I don't know what, you know, if we lost, if we lost our astronauts in space, I don't know what they would have done. How did they have, uh, you know, doppelgangers ready to go to, to walk out of a fake van and pretend that, you know, Mm -hmm. carrying the little box with the respirator thing in it and, and act like we had just gotten back. I don't know. The answer is, I don't know. And then get into a car crash on the way. Oh, that would have been diabolical. I don't know. Something like that could have happened. That I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure what we had in place for that. But the fact was we were going to, we were going to land some people on the moon. So we developed all of this extra footage. We developed everything else. Meanwhile, we're still launching people into space. We're still sending them to the moon, but just in case we've got all this extra stuff. And so what I believe happened is that what, what we now have in the world, as far as footage, photographs, and, and video and everything else from the moon landings, some of it's real. And perhaps some of it sprinkled in here and there. Maybe it's the stuff that we did uh, on the soundstage with uh, Stanley Kubrick. Huh. So do you, do you I think that they just mixed in the fake stuff. They just mixed they it in. Had, they, but they had it and they just didn't want it to go to waste. Like, I think oh, they, we made it to the moon, but like we spent all this money on the pictures. I think that's possible. That's very possible. The other thing is, what if the stuff that we actually got back from the moon was just kind of crap? Uh-huh. You know, like if you send your, your Blurry. daughter out to go and take some photos, they're not going to be as good as a professional photographer's photos. Right. And, you know, they Will had Armstrong's to, got his thumb in front of them. He's got his thumb in front of the yeah. thing or he drops the camera and it breaks a lens or, you know, who knows? Maybe the stuff that they sent up with them had problems. Maybe it didn't operate correctly up there on the moon or right. maybe possible. maybe it worked. But the quality of the, that was coming back was subpar. And they wanted to give us something real. They wanted to give us something great. Maybe they even said, you know what? No one's going to believe they're going to call foul on this, this crappy stuff. That's the real stuff that's coming back is crappy. We've got this fake stuff. Yeah, we'll just toss a bunch of that in there. Look how good it was. Look how good this looks. And that's maybe what happened. That's the only that that to me, I'm comfortable with this because this will I think I don't think that any conspiracy theorist would have too much of a problem going along bo- along with that, getting on board with that. Uh, because it, it answers the question, why, why is there, you know, I don't look at it and say, well, wait a minute, how, come there, how can there be like four different light sources in these weird shadows uh, on these photos if this was taken on the moon like that? Well, the answer is we don't really know. That's certainly not proof to me that they weren't taken there. But if you want to go down that road, oh, here's your answer. So that's where I'm, that's where I'm going to stand. We did get to the moon. We yeah. did everything we said we were going to do. The guys came back and they're fine. And uh, and maybe there's some extra stuff in here just to make it look better. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
you know, like if you went out, if let's say you're going to auto trader and you're trying to sell your RV or something and you go and you take some pictures of it, you know, or you're putting your old computer up on eBay. I do this all. This is one of the reasons why I'm like an eBay, like a king is because when I go to put something up on eBay, not only will I take some of my own pictures, but I'll find a couple stock photos too and I'll throw them in. That's why they call you that's, eBay king. That's why they call me the king. Because no one thinks to do that. I do that and then people look at it and they see like, oh, that's what it looked. Look how close it looks to the stock photo. It's a real thing. If you're trying to sell your RV in AutoTrader, you throw a couple stock fo- photos of what it looked like brand new. That gives a person who's buying it the idea like, wow, I could, I could get it back to that. Mm-hmm. I could bring it up to that level. You see? And now they want your thing instead of the other guys. Right, right, right. I feel like it's the same thing with the moon. Put a couple of real uh, high quality photos in there, and like, yeah, of course we went to the moon. How else could we get these great photos? Uh-huh. Can't uh-huh. get them from Earth. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. And why do you think Stanley Kubrick had all the 2001 props and stuff fully destroyed? It wasn't just the 2001 props in there; it was all the moon stuff. He had to destroy. It was contractually right, obligated to destroy right, right. it. Right. Yeah, he right. just didn't want anyone else using it. Okay. Uh-huh. He filmed uh-huh. that whole thing. Uh-huh. 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 Well, that's all fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I'm very glad that you explained it to me. I'm trying to bring people together, the conspiracists, theorists, and the, the regulars. Bring them together. How, they can all how, agree. Everyone well, can agree on this. How many conspiracy theorists or conspiracists mm-hmm. do you think there are? There's a lot. Do you think that they are a major factor? Do they play a big role in decision making or in how history is is uh, inscribed? Doubtful. I mean, are you concerned about their participation uh, in the sense that if they think that the moon landing was faked, are you worried that they will be like a big block of people that vote the wrong way or, uh, I hadn't even, now I am because you mentioned it. Now I am worried about that. Are they like going to drive up the price of milk or in some way? Like, do they pose a threat to us? Maybe. Maybe. I just want everyone on the same page and I want the, the page we're on to be, uh, titled truth. Truth. Mm -hmm. Right. You want it to be, you want to, you want to discover the truth. I do. I really do. And have you, have you come up with any other sort of like mitigating theories about other, about other uh, conspiracies? Like for instance, like, is there some thing about Bigfoot where you're like, well, some of that stuff was faked, but, but then some of it was real and it was all kind of, it was all mashed together by, by mysterious hands. Or do you think it's, or is there some, are there other instances where you take in both the conspiracy and the evidence of no conspiracy and kind of combine them like a, like a I can't co- think, cookie dough. Yeah. I can't think of any like that. I mean, with the, with, for me, the Bigfoot thing, Bigfoot, when I was a kid growing up, Bigfoot was like, that was, that was the coolest. That was the best. Sure. Like everyone Second only was, to the moon landing, right? Where, what was that? Wasn't there a TV show that there had so many. like a big, that would like had Bigfoot in it as like a yeah. character? Oh, in the seventies. I don't know about in the seventies. Yeah, hold on. But no, there was no. like in search of yeah, Bigfoot and Wild Boy. See what Bigfoot and Wild Boy. 
hell is you that? You never heard never of Bigfoot? Oh, hold on. I'm going to sh- I'm going to send the Bigfoot Yes, you have heard of it. Wild. Yes, you have heard of it. You've watched this. This is this this actually Bigfoot. Haven't we <gasps> talked about this? Whoa. You remember it now, don't you? Whoa. You remember this it is, now? This was in the the Sid and Marty Croft. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Something like that. Bigfoot and Wild Boy. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah. What? What the? How is? Yeah, this, this is a Croft. My You're right. My brain is just blowing up right now. <laughs> it began in 1976 as part of the Croft Super Show on Saturday mornings. Each episode was 15 minutes long, with cliffhanger endings resolved the following week. It became its own series in 1979 with 12 30-minute episodes, total of 28 produced. Plot: Bigfoot finds a young boy lost in the vast wilderness of the American Northwest. Bigfoot raises the boy, who becomes known as Wild Boy. Now, eight years later, they fight crime and aliens who show up around their forest home, featuring Ray Young as Bigfoot and Joseph Butcher as Wild Boy. Crazy. I feel like this is um, could could be something big for us on this show. So this is an example. We've talked about this uh, a little bit tangentially. I've talked about it at a lot of other places too, which is that on Saturday mornings in the 1970s, what did, what did you do? What did you do? Cartoons. On Cartoons. That's right. What did every kid that you knew in <laughs> Cartoons. the world do? Cartoons. Right. And so you watch cartoons in the morning on Saturday mornings. It was the whole reason that you existed, really. <laughs> that's, the whole reason that you, you that's bothered right. to go to school all week or anything. Yeah. Every kid in America got up early on Saturday morning and plopped down in front of the TVs. No adults ever protested this. They were all grateful for it. And we watched cartoons until the cartoon stopped, right? I mean, yeah. I don't remember why you ever got up from No, they would be over and then something else like right. a, right. a news program would come on and you'd have to leave. Yeah, right. Normal television re- rejoined uh-huh. and... And all kids in America then all went out. It was like Super Bowl where the toilets all flush at once. <laughs> Every kid in America then went outside the, the moment that the cartoons were over. But there were three television stations, my friend. NBC, CBS, and ABC. Mm-hmm. And you had to choose what you were going to watch on Saturday morning. And... I remember distinctly that Sid and Marty Croft, like Sigmund and the Sea Monsters yep. and all that stuff, was on was on a channel, mm-hmm. but it was opposite Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. And in at least in my instance, the choice was obvious that Looney Tunes won out over Sigmund and the sea monsters. Mm. And so I remember Bigfoot and wild boy existing, (laughs) but I never watched it because in, in my estimation on one of the other two channels, there was a superior line of, I mean, there might, it might've been, you know what it is. Nobody wants to go up against Looney Tunes, but I bet you it went up against the pink Panther yeah, or some kind of, or Yogi bear or something that, that was, sort of on par with it, but I, but I was choosing the pink. I, I think I chose the pink Panther where a lot of other kids would have gone a different direction. No, would you, you, would you have watched like the Hanna Barbera, 
like what was the one cartoon that had the the big race with all the different characters from sure. every other show in it I, I, with I the like little the, the, the little uh it was like a dog that had that little wheezy laugh <laughs> yeah 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 um Yes, there was. Uh, I did watch those. I think it, th- that was Huckleberry Hound. No, it was um, Wacky Races. Was the name of this? Dino Mutt was in there yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking this up. Hold on. Wacky Races, 1968 TV series. Tom yeah, and Jerry, I guess. Uh, but you know, there were also like. Flintstones and the Jetsons yeah, yeah, yeah. and Scooby-Doo and all that stuff was on too. Anyway, so that, that's, that, uh, that live action stuff, I only ever watched that on Saturday morning. Here's how I, here's what about I Land of the it. Lost? I watched Land of the Lost for sure. Yeah. But that wasn't on Saturday mornings. No. When was it? Yeah, it was. Well, maybe yeah. that was... Or was that, that like it was that like a three p.m. in the afternoon kind yeah, of show? I feel like that was an after school thing. Because like in the morning for me, it was it, before school was usually cartoons. But in the afternoon, and I remember this from being very very little. In the afternoon, in the morning, it was Speed Racer, and yes. in the afternoon, it was Ultraman. Five See, days have, a week. I have no experience of Ultraman. I do I do remember Johnny Quest. Yeah. See, that um, was a little advanced for me for me, yeah, Johnny Quest a lot was. Going on in yeah. Johnny Quest. <laughs> sure. Multiple uh, levels, you know. But um Mudley. You know, Mudley. Dick, Mutley, Dick Dastardly is. and Mutley. There he is. Mutley. Mutley. And, uh, <laughs> and what was this? It was there there was like Wonder Dog. Oh, of course, Wonder Dog. Uh, but if I stayed the night at someone else's house on Friday night, then in the morning we would watch the cartoons that they watched. And so I got exposure to these other things. Oh, I'm completely forgetting super friends. Oh yeah, of course. Super friends. Um, so, you know, it's not like I didn't, it's not like I didn't know what else was going on. I was culturally aware of, of Bigfoot and Wonder Boy, but that just was not, that just was not where my heart was. Yeah. You know? So interesting, interesting, interesting. Although I was very into Bigfoot, um, as a, as a thing to, to be worried about. Mm -hmm. Well, you were right there. Yeah, that's right. We were Bigfoot central here. Uh, we would like to say thank you so much to Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. This is the thing. Let me tell you about this. These mattresses, you're thinking, how, how good could it be? My mattress is fine. I have to tell you, you're probably wrong. Unless you just went out and spent a small fortune at one of those big box mattress stores, or you already have a Casper, you you probably have a horrible mattress and you just don't know it. And the chance is that if you are willing to experience a Casper, I think you're going to be pretty happy with it. And this is the thing. You can be sure of your purchase 
with their 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Okay, so what that means is you get this bed, and you get to try it, sleep in it for 100 nights. If any point in that 100 nights you say, no, not for me, you tell them, and they will come, and they will take it away and give you full refund. It's pretty awesome. And that makes sure that you, you are not at risk. You're not worried. You're not, there's no risk. I mean, how, how can you beat it? Well, let me tell you a bit about Casper. These are designed for humans by humans. That's, that's the way it works. They're cleverly designed to mimic our curves, our shape, our size, and provide supportive comfort regardless of how you are made You get to spend about a third of your life sleeping, right? You should be comfortable. And the chance that your bed is not comfortable is pretty high. You might think it is because you've gotten used to it, but you're not getting the support you need. That can lead to back issues, neck issues, overall just not getting good rest because you're never really sleeping well. They have a breathable design that helps you sleep cool. It helps regulate your body temperature throughout the night. No more wake up where you're like, why am I so hot? Or, oh my God, like I'm super uncomfortable. That just goes away. And the original mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for quality sleep surface. But they now have two other kinds as well. The Wave and the Essential. The Wave has a patent-pending premium support system that mirrors the natural shape of your body, and the essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night. So here's the thing. I love my Casper. I think you're going to love yours too. Remember, it's risk-free for 100 nights. You're going to get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash roadwork and using the promo code roadwork when you check out. Terms and conditions apply. So again, one more time, casper.com slash roadwork, $50 towards select mattress using the promo code ROADWORK. Thanks very much to Casper for their support. I have just found something that, that it's different from what I had as a kid, but there was a pair of boots that I had, you know, that you would wear in the wintertime in the snow. Mm. And this is in Pennsylvania. And they had and i'm i'm looking at a pair right now that seem to be shoes and not boots and i remember mine as being boots that they were normal boots in every possible way except that the tread on the bottom and i'm sending you an image of this in the in messages the tread on the bottom looked like a bigfoot footprint so as you were walking in the snow if someone were to look back at your tracks there would be Bigfoot tracks there. Oh, that's cool. And uh, and unfortunately, I think it said the words Bigfoot across Boo the bottom of the... Me. Yeah, so that would give away any chance that people might have thought it really was Bigfoot walking around. But I was very much obsessed with, with Bigfoot. But today, I've, I've kind of agreed to the fact that uh, Bigfoot probably, probably isn't real. Oh, that's devastating. Yeah. I remember those Bigfoot shoes. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen those Bigfoot shoes since then. Do you think that there were shoes or am I just remembering it wrong? No, that was absolutely. I mean, I remember that shoes that looked like that were very popular, even if it didn't say Bigfoot on the bottom. Mm. But I remember very much thinking that that was a cool thing. Because although it does say Bigfoot, it like says it in some funky, cool letters. Yeah. 
And you wouldn't want to scare people walking all around thinking that they're Bigfoot's all around. So I, I agree with that. Do you remember the bicycle that was articulated in a second place? Uh, there, kind of in, in the, like in the, in the middle, in the middle part. Right. And like you could underneath the, underneath the seat. Yeah. There was another, I think it was called the, was it called the mean machine or was that something else? <laughs> the mean machine, the way I remember it, the mean machine, and I'm looking at a picture of it now, um, was like a, a big wheel. Yeah. But I think it was green okay. and, and maybe the wheel was even bigger. That's what it was. That's what it was. It was a, it was a, it was a big wheel. I think it was a big wheel. So what was ah, the big wheels were so good. I'd ride the hell out one? of a big wheel today. I, we've talked about this. I think that why aren't there adult size big wheels? And <laughs> it must be something that there's a, something in the physics of it that a little kid has, has proportionately enough power to <laughs> propel themselves. Right. Because they're lightweight. But for a big wheel to be grown up size, if you started to, really try and build a thing it just wouldn't it w- it wouldn't work the same way you know and the best thing about the big wheels are that the tires were plastic right and they had the worst ima- the worst traction in the world yes and you would sit and if you weren't on a surface it was just right that wheel would just spin so spin. you were only getting like 50% of your effort back Spin and, but the, the, the other thing skid, it would mm-hmm. spin and skid. You know, and I think that's what so the mean killer. machine had it. I think you could drift with it. I think you had like a break. Oh, well you had that in, in, uh, was in, it the mean know? machine or the green machine? What was it called? The big wheel had a break. It was just, I think that you're right. The mean machine had something else, some other way to spin out. Yeah, it you you could do here. I found something called a green machine. Okay, is this what we're thinking of? Green machine, as opposed to a mean mean machine. machine. Yes, the green machine was steered with. Oh a yeah, lever. right. You had these levers to steer it, and you could slam. It was like the Battle Zone video game. You could slam one far left and the other one right, and wouldn't that that would send you into a spin so it was steered from the rear rather than from the front right right the front tire was state was fixed yeah and the rear tires you would steer by basically applying a brake to one of the tires or wheels so we had a we had a small hill in our neighborhood that so our neighborhood had two really big hills um, one of them was big in the sense that it was, it wasn't long, but it was steep. And the other one was very long, very curvy and very steep. But then there was a short hill and the short hill ended right in front of my house. So it was the perfect size kid hill. You could, you could grab your big wheel or we didn't really have skateboards yet. You grab your big wheel or your bike, you could run up to the top of this short hill and it was exactly the steepness that you could do a super good big wheel ride and skid out at the bottom. So awesome. And it was, it was a wide enough street. Oh, and there were ditches on either side because it was before in Seattle they had, it was before they'd enclosed all the ditches. So there were ditches and if it had been raining at all, you know, the ditches were little rivers 
And then, so, so there were, so the hill was steep enough that initially when you're first learning to ride a big wheel or a bike, you could just be like, nah, and go down to the bottom. But there was plenty of run out. You know, there was no place that you had to do an emergency move. Right. But then as you got older, it was also just the right steepness when you started to stand up on your big wheel. And then when you started to put one foot on the seat and one foot on the handlebars mm. and totally do the like hang 10 mm-hmm. on a big wheel, like it was exa- exactly the right hill. And boy, we pioneered a lot of seriously spin outs, but I never knew the kid that I knew that had like the, this, this green machine type of stuff. Yeah. This, like next iteration. And he also had a bike. God, we got to figure out what the bike was called where you could, where there was a cotter pin. Mm. So it was a normal bike, but there was a cotter pin right in front of the seat. And if you pulled up that cotter pin, all of a sudden it moved now on two planes, the seat, there was another, there was another joint where you could be going straight down the road, but your handlebars could be all the way over to the to the right, and your seat was all the way over to the left. I remember that. It was completely impossible to ride for me. I did not have the spatial understanding to to ever pull it off, and I didn't have the time, and I, I didn't have the time because it wasn't mine. It was some other kids, and I didn't have the, I didn't have the desire to go over to that kid's house all the time and be like, can I try your bike again? Can so I you were never, you were never able thing? to develop mastery over it. No. And, and so, and, and the times that I did ride it, I crashed and it was the worst kind of crash. <laughs> Cause it's that type of thing where you're like, I don't know what to do to recover from. I feel myself going off and I can't recover because every move I make creates an, opposite reaction that's worse than uh than the problem that i'm already in yeah um but but i did have a friend that had a green machine it was just he lived far away and and we had a we had a very strong big wheel culture so strong in fact that we we rode our big wheels until the plastic wheels had flat spots uh-huh. where we had skidded out so many times <laughs> that the wheels were like because because the plastic was worn down. Ugh, big wheels. Big wheels. So wonderful. I really want to figure out what that bike was called. I think definitely a thing where um, articulated, I think that's not the word that they use, but um, it was definitely a, a thing where they somebody had a great idea, and it was called the swing bike. You found it. I think The so. swing bike. Cause, okay, yeah, that yeah. But what was the point of the swing bike? Here it is. It was, there were so many like fun evolutions of toys right at that moment. It was that perfect moment right before people were worried about kids' safety, right? Getting hurt. You know, none of us had ever ever even imagined wearing a helmet or a seatbelt for that matter. So the swing bike, it looked like a Schwinn Stingray. It had a banana seat. Right. It had big chopper handlebars. Right. But the front tire was smaller than the back. I'm looking at the picture. That's right. Exactly. And then it has this crazy spring on it. And the back, the, the, 
the place where your seat stem goes in is exactly like the the handlebar, like the headset of the handlebar or whatever, the um you know, whatever that is. I'm not using my bike terminology that I should know. And so, yeah, it could ju- you could pull that cotter pin, and you would just be in crazy town. <laughs> and I know there were I know there were kids that got good at it, and I'm sure they had like, I'm sure they wore their baseball hats on backwards, and I'm sure that they were just way cooler than me. That was a that was a thing. If you could use a swing bike, like you were into some cool, cool world, because because the swing bike looked like there was a Schwinn Stingray that kind of did. It had a, a smaller front tire because it was meant to ride wheelies. There was like a bike specifically made to ride wheelies. I think that's pretty cool. Did you were you able to ride a wheelie? No, I was really into the BMX stuff, but could you could you bunny hop? I, I that was probably like the most advanced trick I was ever able to do. I sucked at it. I didn't have, we didn't have any money to like get pegs or anything cool for the bike. And what I came to find out later was that all the BMX bikes that the kids were using doing the real tricks, these were very lightweight bikes. And mine was like a really heavy bike that I think my parents just got for me at, you know, like a, like a, like a big box store or something. Like it was not like what the cool kids had. Right. And same thing with these stupid freaking remote control cars. Uh, like the mongoose you remember the mongoose these were remote control cars i think they still make them um where instead of being like gas powered um they were they were like they had actual little motors in them or something uh i think uh-huh. And I think they still make this, but all these kids, they had these the crazy little remote control cars. I had, n- I had none of this stuff, but no, I couldn't, I couldn't do much more than it. I could barely do the, uh, the bunny hop. I've never been able to bunny hop. I've never been able to Ollie. Oh uh, yeah. I've never been able to do any of the things that would mark me as someone who knew what the hell was going on uh-huh. with any kind of cool. I couldn't wheelie. I've never done a cartwheel on my hands um like all the cool tricks that kids I, can, can you do, do somersaults i i was pretty good at somersaults yeah, my I could daughter do a somersault. doesn't want a summer she doesn't want a somersault at all i don't think either of my kids have done that in their life I, yeah i try to get her to somersault and she's like no it that will hurt my neck yeah and i'm like yeah i know that's the thing about them you have to kind of figure out how to <laughs> not hurt your it. neck Okay, hold on, hold on. A swing bike is a brand of bicycle which allowed for steering at both the front wheel and the rear wheel. That's that's a very shorthand way of saying it that I should have been able to get to. The design was patented by Ralph Belden in 1974, brought to market in 75, and discontinued by 78. The name Uh has come to mean any bike with a second steering axis in front of the saddle. A new bicycle by the same name has been launched by America's Bike Company in San Diego, California. The original swing bike was in the wheelie bike style Uh, and the the swing bike company also offered a normally steered BMX bike in 1977. An early working name for the swing bike was a pivot cycle. But all I knew was that my BMX, which was very heavy and didn't do tricks was black. And that made me very happy because it was black. I, I, I did, I did it in the wrong direction. 
I think that I had a 10 speed at a time when all the kids were transitioning to, so I had a, I had a, a Schwinn Stingray. My mom was a good mom and my first bike was a blue Stingray with a white banana seat and white hand grips. And my blue Stingray was a very cool bike. I ultimately outfitted it with a siren, a battery-powered siren. I put cards in the spokes. Um, I had, I had um, those confetti, plastic confetti on the on the hand grips, whatever that stuff is. Not confetti. Well, you know, like I had dangles. Yeah, the the little fringe, fringy. Yeah. Fringe on the on the on the uh, the handlebars. Uh-huh. I had a light, and then I had the best part was a giant flag, like a like a um, a fiberglass flagpole that stuck. That was meant to be a thing. This was like mid seventies. Like look out for kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you put a put a red just a pennant style flag on top of this big flagpole, and then it was supposed to make you visible to cars or something. I had this bike all tricked out when she bought it for me. It had training wheels and then it was like, it was fully great. The stingray was a fully great bike all the way up until about 1980. At which point everybody went to BMX and there was a very brief period where I had a stingray and everybody else had a BMX, but I never, I never abandoned the stingray. I was never like, Stingray sucks now. I need a BMX. You know, it wasn't like that. I just, I maybe I got a little big for it. Maybe the thing is that I always was still into the siren. Like I'm sure there were kids that thought I was a nerd because I had a siren on my bike. But what is cooler? And like, oh, the siren had a little, (laughs) it had a little speaker. You could, you had a little cop megaphone, and you'd be like, you guys are jerks or whatever into your into your cool thing. I never was against it. But then I transitioned to 10 speed. Yeah. Because I thought, well, I'm in sixth grade now. You know, I need a, I need a, I need to make that move to the, to the big bike. So I was on 10 speeds when all the other kids were learning tricks and doing wheelies and stuff. And I felt a little bit, like I often felt as a kid that I was kind of both younger than everybody and also more grown up than everybody at the same time. Mm. Like I was a poindexter is why. (laughs) What does that mean? Oh, just like, well, you kids are, those wheelies seem dangerous. (laughs) You know, like I just was a, I was, I was. Honestly, I I wanted, I wanted to do all of those. I wanted to do all those. I just, I was not, I was not capable. Well, I wanted to too, but I was afraid, you know, and also, so I, so I went the other, so I intentionally went the other direction, which is like, well, I've got to read this wall street journal, which I, you know, <laughs> yeah, trying to read the wall street journal because I thought that I was, that I thought I needed to, that I, that I needed to be ready for something else other than all this kid stuff. But, but I was secretly playing with GI Joes too. It was just, it was just the interaction with other kids and the fact that they could do tricks and I couldn't. And I didn't want to sit there and like learn in front of everybody. And I, I just didn't have that physicality that, um, 
because in a way, you know, it was partly that I was big. I was big boned and right. And so the, the littler kids, the ones that were just like, they got on a, on a skateboard and that afternoon they were ollieing over curbs. <laughs> right. They just, it was just a natural progression from how do I ride this to now I'm going to, you know, slide down the, the edge yeah. of this thing. And I think it was that they were lightweight. If they crashed, they didn't get hurt. And you know, all they had to do was kind of like, Oh, you just kick the tail and then you just jump. Sure. And I, I just, every time I got on a skateboard, I felt like I was going to be like the Kool-Aid man going through completely through the wall of whatever building was at the bottom of the hill. I didn't have, if I fell down, you know, like this was a crash. But then sometime in high school, there was a whole group of my friends that were bicycle kids Mm -hmm. and they were all on BMX bikes. And I finally said, you know, I need a BMX bike. Well, I was in 10th grade at which point the, the whole like red line bike thing was going crazy. I mean, aluminum bikes with the foot pegs, the ones that you're talking about. Yeah. Kids were starting to go on skate ramps on bicycles and I didn't have, I wasn't ready for all that. So I bought a Schwinn BMX bike at a garage sale that was just exactly like the one you're describing. It probably weighed 400 pounds. It was made out of, everything was steel. Right. And I had this bike for one summer where I was, where I always felt like I was pedaling super hard to catch up with everybody. Like, wait up guys. And then everybody (laughs) bought it. Everybody bought not just a 10 speed, but like a, like a light racing. Everybody got into the tour de France all at the same moment. Right. Sure. And then I remember one fateful trip across town that all my friends were like, come on, let's go. And I was on the slow steel BMX bike and they were all on 10 speeds. Mm. And I just was like, I'm never on the right side of history here. I bought a Centurion 10 speed and on one of, and I wrote it to, this was when I, I got a job. Actually, I was in, it was the summer after 11th grade I I had a job and I rode my bike to my job and on the way home I was like cranking up a hill like I'd seen in the Tour de France. Mm -hmm. And this was, the Centurion wasn't, it was a nice racing bike and I bent the rims. Oh no. The aluminum rims just with the torque, just with the side force of standing up on the pedals and cranking up a hill my 200 plus pounds just warped the wheels and I was so embarrassed. I was just like, I can't even ride a bike up a hill without breaking the bike. <laughs> and so I saw, I sold the Centurion <laughs> and I just was like bicycling. Oh no, there's one further humiliation. Then mountain bikes arrived. No one had ever heard of it before. Yeah, and yeah. first I remember bike. I remember the appearance of the mountain bike vividly. Yep. Because my parents both got a mountain bike. Oh, they did? Yeah. Well so that, that mountain, was very clear clearly a way of saying this is this is not for you. Uh-huh. I had a my, friend like my that. parents His had parents. My friend Karen. Um my friend Karen had parents that were that were pretty well off. 
And every year they would buy themselves new ski equipment, top to bottom, the the best new skis and boots. And they this was during the years when you would wear like, I mean, I never did, but people, adult people would wear jumpsuits, like ski unit, unisuits. Mm-hmm. To exercise they, in to like burn more calories or something. No, no, no. It was just, this was the cool look of in oh. France. They had big collars and they were like, you know, they were white, uh, padded. They weren't like form fitting. They were, they were, they looked like ski clothes, but it was just a, it was just a suit you climbed in. And Karen was a ski racer. Like I was like, and the kids in ski racing were super, it was a, it's a rich kid sport and they were super judgmental about your gear in addition to everything else they were judgmental about. Like at the beginning of the year, you showed up and if you had new gear and we were all very brand conscious of ski gear, like, oh, you ski Rosinals? Well, I ski Atomic Arcs. <laughs> Rosinals suck. And atomic arcs are cool. And then the Rosinal kids would be like, Rosinals are the best. And you could point to the World Cup results and be like, guess who's, you know, guess who's in number one at the World Cup slaloms this week? It's Rosinal, Team Rosinal. And I had very strong feelings about that stuff. I was absolutely a Solomon bindings guy. And there were people that had marker bindings, which I had, which I admit were cool. I was very against Tyrolia bindings, like against them. What What is that? What is all this stuff? Well, bindings are the little metal clamps that hold your boot to your ski. So in skiing, there are your boots, there are your bindings, there are your skis, and there are your poles. And then in your clothing, you have gloves, jacket, sweater. You have your outer pants, your inner pants, your goggles, and your hat. And every single one of those things within skiing culture in the 70s and 80s was a thing you could be a snob about. And so my equipment was, originally I was Rosinal skis, I had Solomon bindings, I had um, Nordica boots, I had spider ski wear, pants, sweater. Oh, no, my my racing sweater was a head sweater. And then your hat was where you could advertise that you were on the ski team or not. If If you were on the ski team, they gave you a ski team hat. And I remember before I was on the ski team, just or I, before I was on the Mighty Mites, I coveted the Mighty Might hat. It was so cool. It was red and white, and it had these wavy stripes on it. And it was just like if you if you didn't have a Mighty Might hat, you were just a kid. You weren't a Mighty Might. You were a kid, just some dumb kid, like so many thousands of dumb kids. I'm looking at a picture of of bindings right now. So then marker bindings kind of came on the scene later. There were look bindings and I, and look bindings were weird. They, they were a different style of binding, but I kind of, you couldn't argue with look bindings. They weren't race bindings. Let's say that, but they were cool, like free dog bindings. But the main competitors in my world were Solomon bindings and Tyrolia bindings and Tyrolia bindings. I was just against them. I felt like people that had Tyrolia bindings on their skis we're just a different class of people and not a good class. Mm. A str- like a strange, like a, like a neo free doggers. 
and I was against free doggers pretty much unless you were full on free dogger and you couldn't be, you couldn't be against that because that was just a whole other thing. That was like, if you were a full on free dogger, you tied handkerchiefs around your, around your knees. You know, you skied in jeans. If you were a free, if you were full <laughs> really? free, you skied in <laughs> jeans and you had a completely different style of skiing, which was not competitive and it wasn't aggressive like free dog style was leaning way back knees together it was super stony and and racing style was like well i mean it was an entire ballet of choices that you made about where you how you set the edge of your ski and how your how your body english related to being over the front of your skis and how how you were positioned relative to the fall line of the mountain and all of this was stuff we were watching about each other and and it was it was a very competitive environment very tough so I often had last year's skis. Like I transitioned from Rosinals to Elans, which were cool. And then from Elans to Atomic Arcs, which were cool. And from Atomics, I went to Vocals, which were cool. But I was always a little bit behind the curve. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have the newest shit on October 1st. I, right. was, I was inheriting stuff from my dad. And my dad bought cool stuff for himself. And then it would kind of percolate down to me. As I got to be a better racer, they would buy me equipment for myself. But Karen's parents, but my dad wasn't rich. Karen's parents were rich. Everybody in town knew them. They were that rich. Mm. But they would buy new gear for themselves every year. And Karen had to make do with her old stuff because they just didn't, they just didn't. Our sense of it at the time was like Karen's parents were just like going to swinger parties and living their best life and their daughter was a little bit of a drag on them. And so, you know, you felt bad for Karen because she was a pretty good skier. But the other girls were merciless because it's like it's like in Southern California or whatever if you don't have the right purse. But, you know, it's a it was full on Heather's universe except at at kind of the dawn of brand consciousness for kids yeah and related to this sport where you also had to be good at the sport and you had to be good in the apres ski world where you're doing drugs getting drunk and making out with each other and having sex in the in people's ski chalets because it was a very advanced it's like rich kid advanced (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're all they're all neglected by their rich parents, and so they're they're having sex with each other, and they're getting high at a at a much younger age. And we were all left, you know, we were at a ski resort, so the parents were like, "We're going out, you know, see you later." And so the kids were kind of left just to figure out what they were going to do themselves in this enclosed environment of a small town way up in the mountains where you couldn't really escape. It's not like you could get in any trouble. Everybody knew each other. So kids were just having sex and doing drugs. And I was super out of all of that at that age, Mm. terrified of sex and girls and drugs. So like Karen and Corey and I would, 
oh, we are such nerds. We would play like spy. <laughs> we're 14 years old and we're like running around this town like like being KGB versus CIA stuff. <laughs> I mean, and, and, the, and, you know, we had girls that were our friends, but it never occurred to us to like try to get to first base with each other. We were just like, okay, you guys are the KGB and such nerds. I think maybe I got so into drugs later because I, because I really felt like I needed to catch up from all this, uh, from all the time that I was, that I was such a, just a weeb. Uh, we would like to say thank you to Beachbody On Demand. This is an easy-to-use streaming service that gives you instant access to a wide variety of super effective workouts you can do from the comfort of your own living room. How awesome is that? This is the company behind um, P90X, Insanity, 21 Day Fix. Uh, there's so many that they have. They even have one called a three-week yoga retreat. And, you know, I, I go to the gym usually two or three days a week. And the other thing that I do in my home is, is rowing with a, with a rower. But I got, I, it's easy to get bored of that kind of stuff. Enter Beachbody On Demand. And what I'm trying to tell you is you can be somebody who never moves at all and you want to get into decent shape or just not be in bad shape. Just have some kind of activity. Just have some kind of movement going on in your life. Or you could be somebody like me where, yeah, I go to the gym. I do these other things. But you know what? They get boring. Doing the same workouts or doing the same activities over and over again, they get kind of boring. And this is a wonderful way to either get in shape when you don't do anything, take your workouts to the next level, or mix things up and try something new. They have really, really great programs. They have the best trainers around. Okay. These are people that you've heard of like, uh, Sean T, Tony Horton, um, Autumn Calabrese. I mean, these are people that are big in the, you may not know the names now, but if you Google them, you will see, these are like major players. They're awesome, awesome trainers. And the best part is it's on your schedule. Workouts are as short as 10 minutes and they don't require any extra equipment. And the time it takes you to drive and park at a gym, you could be done working out. I'm telling you, you can watch them on your computer, your, your web TV, your smart TV, your tablet, your smartphone, Roku, Apple TV, Chromecast, you name it. And there's over a million people who are currently on Beachbody On Demand. And, and the way that this works is uh, you get access to everything on this. They have a special free trial membership, uh, including their new 14-day results plan. You can lose up to nine pounds in the first two weeks. This is real. This is not like a you'll lose and you gain it back because you're getting in shape. This is not, we'll just don't eat for two weeks. No, this is about getting in shape. When you text the word, uh, ro- when you text roadwork, roadwork to 30, 30, 30. And by the way, there's no spaces in roadwork, just the one word roadwork to 30, 30, 30. The reason I have you text is because that's, they're an old school, they're an OG company. And this is the way they work. There's no website to go to. You text that and you get this free trial membership with their 14-day results plan. And uh, the results, it's going to get you super fast results. But in the meantime, you get access to the entire platform for free. All the workouts, all the nutritional information, all the support, everything totally free. Go check it out. 
text ROADWORK to 303030-3030. And we thank and appreciate the support of Beachbody On Demand. But it bur- I think it burned out. And the thing was, I was a good skier. I wasn't a good... I wasn't really a super good athlete at anything else. I never have done a cartwheel. I was at an event the other day where some kid, probably nine years old, was just cartwheeling so freely, little boy, he could just cartwheel all the way across a football field. That's crazy. Just like cartwheeling effortlessly. And I watched him and I was like, at your age, I could not do a cartwheel. I have never in my life done a cartwheel, and I'm now at the age where I will never do a cartwheel. There's, right. there's no way I will be able to ever do a cartwheel, and it's a thing that's so simple for you, little boy. And I'm past the point of being jealous of him. I'm just like, awesome. You're an awesome. You're so good at that. I actually went up to him, and I was like, you're awesome. The kid was like, ha-ha, wee. But – you know, imagine it when I was nine and there were nine year olds that could do that or eight or seven. Like I definitely felt like I had a, I had a kind of handicap of like some sort of physical physicality that, that, I, that didn't allow me to do all the fun things, but I could ski. I was a good skier. And, uh, and that was the age where I, I figured out that if you don't have the good, if you don't have cool clothes, and you're not making out with people and you're not doing drugs and you're not rich and you're not like such a good skier that everybody has to shut up when you show up. Cause I wasn't that good. Every once in a while you'd see a kid that was so good at skiing that whatever he did was cool. I wasn't that. And that was right at the age that I figured out, Oh, but I am fucking funny and I'm funny in a way that it's very easy to just turn one knob in being funny and you can turn it into being cruel. Like you can be funny and then if you feel attacked, you can be cruel. And I made that transition somewhere in 10th or 11th grade where I realized I could destroy people and I used that power that power I used unchecked (laughs) while you were you were mad with power yeah I felt so I felt like I'd been at at a disadvantage with other kids for so long because I didn't want to fight I wasn't I couldn't throw a football I was not good with girls I was not cool but i became funny and then very quickly like the kind of funny that you'd better not mess with because you just don't nobody the worst thing a cool kid can possibly imagine is some kid on the on the sidelines watching him be cool and saying something devastating that makes everyone laugh at them because you can, I mean, even the total acolytes of the cool kids, if you say the right devastating thing, they'll, they will laugh right in the face of the, of the kid that a minute ago they were totally sucking up. You're to. right about that. Humor, yeah. humor and the right kind of humor really does have that power. Yes, Whereas you, if you're, even if you're cool, if you're cool, you can still be brought down by the right joke, by the right cut down. 
You're right. I never really thought about that, but you're, you're at, very right. At a certain point in my junior year, I went from being a kid that was bullied, a kid that was, you know, either pushed down or pushed out of the way. Like the, the pretty girls would point and laugh because I was, you know, I was smart. I was like other kids knew me, but knew me as like a nuge and like a, like a pudgy nuge. I went from that to just like one of the Lords <laughs> because I could, I could ruin anybody. I always had a quip and I could sit and, and, you know, and it, and it was that kind of power that made people fear you because I could sit at a table and just be funny. I was just being funny about things and there'd be six or seven people there just laughing and we'd all be having a good time. But it was a Stockholm syndrome effect where everybody at the table was laughing and hoping desperately that I did not turn, that they didn't do something where I had to turn my machine guns on them. And so I became very popular my last couple of years at school. But that popularity was, was because I became untouchable. And also because, because in that dog eat dog world of kids, I had the ability to take down the top kids. I wasn't going to replace them as like the most beautiful or the most cool or whatever, but I could take them down. Mm. And I used that power unchecked until one day I saw myself, you know, I saw myself reflected in the looks on the faces of other kids where I was like, oh shit, they all hate me. I mean, they are all terrified and, and nobody likes me. I'm, I'm here. I'm in the center of a group of people and they're all laughing and smiling, but I'm awful. And it, and it happened. How did you have that kind of like presence of mind as a teenager? Because there was a girl named Rhonda and Rhonda was a friend of mine. She was, she was nice to me. She was a nice girl. Like she was popular. She was friends with everybody, but she wasn't cruel. She was, she wasn't, uh, she wasn't a lame kid who she wasn't somebody that would make fun of your clothes or make fun of you at all. She was just like a nice person. And Rhonda was a friend. She was a member of my of my friend group and I liked her. I'd always liked her. She was nice to me back when I was just a, just a weeb. She'd never been me. And Rhonda was in the halls one day walking along with some group of friends. And I was there just, you know, stand, leaning against a set of lockers, just, just shooting everybody down <laughs> Because, you know, in Anchorage at the time, there was like the popular kids were what I think in other schools you would have thought of as the football players and the cheerleaders, except in Anchorage, they were hockey players. And the hockey players had, they, they, they wore like gray cowboy boots and had mullets and their dads bought them like Chevy stepside pickups mm. that had, you know, glass pack mufflers on them. So they were, you know, they would peel out and, yeah. and, um, and they, and the, their girlfriends all had big, big hair, super big hair. 
and were cheerleaders and ran the DECA and they were the ones that they didn't run yearbook cause that was for nerds, but they definitely, they definitely knew that they were going to rule the yearbook. Like their pictures were going to be the ones that they were, they were super conscious of that stuff of, you know, they, they ran the school dances and the proms and stuff. And th- those, those boys were fighters too. You know, they would, they'd put their fist under your nose um, and they kind of ruled the school that way. Mm. You know, you, ki- other kids, younger kids were, they just either were scared of them or avoided them because they were kind of in a different class. But I could do that. I could do that. I could lean against the lockers and they'd walk by and I'd be like, derp, derp, you know, like, oh, here he is, Mike so-and-so, like he's got a thermometer. I just had that kind of kapow. Mm. And they couldn't do anything. I mean, every once in a while they would come over and put, you know, shake their fist under my nose and I'd be like, oh, are you going to hit me? Like, are you some kind of, what's up, Batman or whatever? And then just, you know, <laughs> just cover them with shame. <laughs> right. Right. But Rhonda walked by in a group of people and I was just sitting there kind of unchecked at, because at that point I was unchecked. Nobody, I was untouchable. And I said something about Rhonda and I looked at her and I could see that it had devastated her mm. that it was because I, I've always had the ability to kind of see what you see, what's going on in somebody else, mm-hmm. like see what their fear is, see what makes them happy just by looking at them and knowing them a little. You could just see like, oh, she's really insecure about her ears or whatever. That that was a superpower I had and have. But I used it, I used that power injudiciously. And in this case, I said something about Rhonda. And it got a laugh. But it humiliated her. And and she actually ran off. No. And I realized that I had said something that I couldn't really take back mm. because I had, because it was true. Yeah. I, you know, what makes a kid like that funny and dangerous is not that he's just shooting blanks. It's that a kid like that can see. And he's a sniper. And, and from, and the reason that you can see when you're somebody like that is he spent a lot of years getting getting pushed down and you just learned about people you learn. I mean, I learned about people in those years when I was, when I had the wrong bike. Um, and so I couldn't take it back. I couldn't go apologize to her because I didn't know how to apologize, but also like, I mean, what I said was, was something that I already knew she was worried about. And I just saw myself all of a sudden in just in this spotlight of like, how could I do that to my, how could I do that to this girl who was, who was so good to me? I mean, it's not like, it's not like Rhonda ever stood between me and a bullet, but she wasn't, she wasn't one of my enemies. Right. And I looked around and I just sort of realized, oh my God, like I have been treating everybody like they were my enemy, including my friends. And oh no, I'm terrible. Mm. And I, I think 
something in me changed where I really pulled back and my sense of humor changed. I still, if somebody like tried to take me on, I could still, I could still laser them, but I stopped looking for that opportunity in everything. Right. That makes sense. And I was a, I was, I was voted most humorous that year, senior year. And my picture's in the yearbook as, you know, most humorous. But you can see on my face that, you can see on my face in the picture that I'm just, I'm a little uncomfortable. And it's because somewhere in the, in the weeks prior to that, I just had this idea all of a sudden that like, am I funny or am I just like wicked? And I remember it was, it was the summer after my senior year, I was driving around with a friend and the friend said, you know, you used to be so funny. You were the funniest person anybody knew and you're just not that funny anymore. And I was hurt by it because I thought that I'd made it, made a transition, you know, that I was still, still funny, but I just wasn't mean but from his standpoint as a 17 year old having uh, having tried at least to abandon the meanness i had lost something i had lost a a big 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 component of my humor and my power and i you know i admired chevy chase and i admired bill murray and i admired the the comedians that that you had a sense that they had zingers always had the power of zingers. David Letterman could always zing you. Right. Letterman like over time got so that he didn't zing people quite as hard and he wasn't zinging them. You know, he's on television. It's not like he could just tear you apart, but you knew he could. And, uh, but the thing is like Belushi never zinged anybody. Mm hmm. Belushi zinged people in a different way, which was just like food fight. (laughs) Yeah. But Belushi wouldn't, I mean, Belushi would zing you by raising an eyebrow and in raising that eyebrow, you knew he was communicating that you, that the person that he was raising the eyebrow at was a, was a square. Right. Totally. But like Bill Murray, think about the way that Bill Murray probably zinged people. I mean, just mercilessly, he, I would think he just cut him into sausage. Yeah. So, you know, those guys were my heroes, but I, but I came out of high school and I went into college, uh, very much like tempered. And I never, I never, ever really went back to that cruelty. It's still in me. I can still, I mean, I think of 100 zingers an hour uh, in in social situations, and I could sit, I could lean against the back wall at a party and and just cut everybody down because I because I still have that that power to see what people's weaknesses are and to see what they're they're most afraid of. But I but I don't, and I think it's now it would be an extremely unpleasant personality in an in a, a grown-up but i but i watch stand-up comics do it 
and and it's more it's more the tone of stand-up comedy sometimes you you see that it that it's based around this um it's based around a sneer mm. rather than around a light you know a lighter face any comedy that's based around sneering i just get very uncomfortable around it cuz it's you know cuz i cuz i once wielded it right the dark side is really what it is 